Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your love for us tonight. And we thank You for Your commitment to our lives and all of it grace. Thank You that You're for us and that You're always with us. And how You have given us these promises and not just promises, but You've kept them in our lives and made us so secure in our relationship with You given us such a love and appreciation for You, for what You do and what You are doing, Lord, that we don't even remotely deserve, but that You desire to bestow upon us. Thank You for the privilege of being Your children tonight. And we pray, Lord, that You would bless us as we study Your Word tonight and that You would use it to further conform us into the image of Your Son and bring us out into the fullness of the freedom that You have for us in this life. And we pray and we ask for this work of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. John's Gospel, chapter 8 this evening. Verse 12 is where we'll pick it up. I'm glad you're here tonight. And Jesus then said to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So we remember the context of what we find ourselves in the middle of here. Jesus is, Jesus is teaching in one of the uh, areas of the courtyards of, of the temple. Uh, a woman that is caught in the very act of adultery is brought to him by these religious leaders and uh, he uh, dispenses the, with them with the, the truth and convicting them of their own sin. He then uh, extends his forgiveness to the woman uh, with the caveat, go and sin no more. So the crowd remains. And the crowd is a crowd of people that have been watching all of this that came uh, to hear him teach that morning and have, have come aside to him in order to hear his uh, uh, instruction through the word. There are also religious leaders, Pharisees, that make up uh, this congregation. They're listening to what it is that he has to say. And so these um, religious leaders that had brought the woman and, and had so uh, terribly treated her uh, they weren't the only Pharisees present. Others were in the audience and, and they continue to um, uh, be a part of the audience. And so when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, this is one of the seven I am statements of Jesus that constitutes the uh, gospel according uh, to John. When he declared that I am uh, the light of the world, his audience would have understood immediately that he was declaring himself uh, to at least be uh, the Messiah and probably uh, to be div divine. One of the major features in the, at that time of the Feast of Tabernacles, you remember last time when we talked about the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles on the eighth day, the great day of the feast, the final day of the feast that they had put together this ceremony where the golden pitcher would be taken down to the pool of Siloam by the priest, brought up, poured into a silver pitcher. The water would come out of the bottom representing the, the water that God had provided to the children of Israel during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that great miracle. They had also added something else to the celebration of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles beyond what God required in His Word. And uh, it sets up the context for what is happening here. And they put these great uh, giant lamps in the women's court in the temple. Uh, they would light them. The wicks of the lamps were uh, made up of the uh, shredded uh, clothing of robes of the priests that had worn out. Uh, the light would then illuminate the entire temple area and uh, the people would gather to sing praises and to dance. And the light was another reminder of that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness of how God 
had led them by a pillar of cloud by day and, and a, a pillar of fire by night. And it reinforced, as Jesus declares Himself of the light of the world, it, it reinforced the idea Jesus was communicating that He is God with them. He is present uh, with them uh, in, in the fulfillment of, of all of this. And that uh, God, he, God had sent Jesus into the world in order to successfully lead them and us through the wilderness that is, the, that is this world, uh, the greater wilderness than any wilderness that the children of Israel uh, face. Uh, certainly a more complicated uh, wilderness. And he declared that those who chose to follow him would not walk in darkness. In other words, he will never lead a person into darkness and they shall have uh, the light of uh, life. And so when he declares himself to be the light of the world and then that he will uh, cause his, his disciples or followers to have the light of life, the life that we, light that we need for life, moral, spiritual, most important, light. I think we've all walked into a dark room. I don't, re and I remember one time, um, uh, and I think Karen and I were together in, in India, and um, we moved, for, walked, it was just as dark as could be. And you, you literally, I mean, you talk about it, but you could not see where you were putting your, your next step. And uh, that really strong darkness and that sense of, of danger and uncertainty and you certainly don't walk very fast and you don't make great progress in that kind of condition. Uh, if you ever walk into a room that is completely uh, pitch dark, uh, you realize how hard it would be to navigate uh, that room as opposed to when the light is turned on. And so Jesus promises us uh, as His disciples, anybody that would follow Him, is that He will lead us into the light of uh, life. Imagine living your entire life in a completely dark room. Now, number one, what a miserable experience uh, that it, it, it would be, uh, and how hard it would be to navigate it, and you would really not know any safety in that room because you don't know what pieces of what are there. In, in furniture and the layout of the house or the room or these kind of things. Same thing in this world. Without Christ in our life, the world morally and spiritually is completely dark to us. And, and so we don't know how to navigate it without injuring ourselves. We don't, know, uh, we don't know what we should be in the midst of this world until Jesus comes into our life and then turns on the light, and then the life that was so difficult to navigate uh, just previously to becoming a Christian now becomes very clear to us because of His instruction uh, and His moral and His spiritual instruction. And so uh, He brings a safety into our life, a capacity to enjoy life that would never otherwise uh, be there. Now, because Jesus has brought this light into our lives, we see this world, this dark world, the Bible declares it to be, we see it with a clarity that nobody else possesses. We see it with a clarity that allows us to navigate it without being uh, damaged. But the fact that we see this world with the kind of clarity that we do, as Jesus promises us here, it can, make a, it, can, uh, it can be very frustrating to us when people that are not Christians don't see it with the same clarity that we see it with. And so we think to ourselves, why can't you see this? Why can't you see where this ends? Why can't you see, uh, whether on an individual level or a corporate level, why can't you see this ends in disaster? How can you believe this can have any other result or whatever it might be? And so it's frustrating because we see things clearer than anyone else sees and we also see the problems with a greater clarity than anybody else uh, has. And so it can be a great, this clarity, the spiritual clarity that we possess 
uh, can be, uh, it is a great blessing in our lives, but it can be a great frustration if we expect the world around us to process the world or see the world in the same way that we do or in the same way that Jesus will provide into uh, any life. So he declares himself to be the light of the world. Then the Pharisees who remained in the audience, uh, therefore they said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. I am the light of the world. They immediately said, wait a second, the law of Moses says that we're not to believe uh, the, the, the witness of one person to establish uh, a fact. And, uh, and, and so it's only you bearing witness of yourself. And so we reject your witness as the light of the world. Now the law of Moses declared that in a capital crime uh, and in their kind of uh, judicial system, that in order to convict somebody, there had to be two witnesses. Nobody could be condemned to death on the basis of he said, she said, or he said, he said. Uh, they then took it, the, the Jewish religious leaders, down into every area of life. They took it further than, uh, than God had intended to. And so uh, they uh, uh, um, uh, uh, applied to the law of Moses as a means of rejecting this claim of His. Now what they're doing here is very, very clever in a diabolical way. Because what they're doing here is they are not only, uh, they are intent, continuing to be intent upon exposing Jesus uh, publicly. So when they say, hey, you're just saying about that about yourself on the basis of one witness, on the basis of that, under the law of Moses, we're free to reject that. And they're communicating to the crowd, so can you. And so should you. They're trying to undermine his audience. They know that they can't undermine him, but they're after the, uh, the audience as well. Jesus' response is beautiful in verse 14. He answered and He said to them, even if I bear witness of Myself, My witness is true. Even if I was the only witness to this fact, by virtue of the fact of who I am and what I am, it, it, that witness would be enough. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Speaking of, of heaven. He came from heaven. He was going back to heaven on the basis of His credentials based upon that. His witness is true. He said, uh, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And so Jesus is saying, you reject me as the light of the world, but in order to reject me as the light of the world, you have to be judging according uh, to the flesh, not with an honest uh, 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 judgment. If they were honest in their judgment of Jesus, they would recognize in the light of His teaching, in the light of His miracles, and in the light of the life that He lived, that all of these things also constituted a witness to His claim to be the light of the world and to be divine and to be uh, the Messiah. But they're not interested in giving Jesus a fair judgment. They're only interested in condemning Him. And Jesus makes that uh, clear to them. You are judging me according to the flesh. You are closing your eyes to so much in order to do so. And then he said, and yet if, and when he says, I judge no one, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't judge or Jesus uh, won't judge. It means he doesn't judge according to the flesh. He judges righteously. He judges on the basis of facts, on the basis of the entire uh, picture. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am, uh, I am with the Father who sent me. It is, also, is it, uh, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men uh, is true. So he refers back to the demand of the Old Testament Scripture. He said, you want two witnesses? I'll give you two witnesses. I am one who bears witness of myself. You want a second witness? We'll go right to the top. And the Father who sent me bears witness of me. 
Again, nobody could do the miracles that Jesus was doing uh, as a mere human being. So he, he declares the Father to witness to the fact that He is divine, that He is the Messiah, uh, based upon Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. That among those uh, prophecies that were given concerning the Messiah is that He would work miracles, uh, uh, that He would declare Himself to be Messiah, He would declare Himself to be uh, divine, and He would be divine. So they were rejecting the witness of the Scriptures, the witness of the Father to Jesus' claims, and all of His miracles uh, that He had do was doing as well, uh, that the Father had called Him uh, to, uh, uh, to perform. And then they said to Him, as he brings up the issue of his father bearing witness to him, they said, where is your uh, father? Why don't you produce your father? Why don't you produce this second witness that you uh, claim to have? And Jesus answered and he said, you know neither me nor my father. For if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And, uh, and so he's declaring God the Father to be his Father. And he, he's saying, because you don't know me, you don't know uh, uh, him at all either. And these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his hour uh, had not yet uh, come. And then Jesus said to them, uh, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And so he says, I'm going away. This speaks of his death, speaks of his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension uh, back into heaven. Remember, he's in the last six months of his public ministry. And so he speaks to them of the fact uh, that he's going to leave them, and uh, and given their rejection of him, he's he is going to leave them in the worst spiritual condition uh, that he could leave a person in, and they were determined to be in that condition, and that is to remain in their sin. I'm going away. You're going to seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, he doesn't say you will die in your sins. That's true, but he's talking about a big, bigger picture. Sin is singular here. He's talking about the fact that you, because of your rejection of me and the salvation that I alone can provide, this puts you in danger of dying in your sinful condition uh, without a remedy for your sinful condition. And if you die in that condition your sin not having been dealt with in the way that God the Father prescribes, that is, through faith in me, I'm going to heaven and you'll never see me again. You will have no access to the, to the place that I am going and you're frittering away your opportunity to believe in me and not die in your sins by playing the kind of games that you're playing here uh, with me. It's not a game. And it's a, a very, very serious business. Well, the Jews didn't understand what it was that he was saying here. And so when he said, I'm going away, you'll seek to find me, you'll die in your sin, where I go, you cannot come, the Jews concluded, will he kill himself? Because he said, where I go, you cannot come. Now, uh, uh, the Jewish religious leaders at that time considered um, suicide to be the chief sin. And that if anybody committed suicide, uh, by the way, the Bible doesn't teach this, I'm just saying what they said, that if somebody committed suicide, that it would uh, relegate them to the darkest, deepest part of eternal judgment and, and hell. And, and so uh, they are, they're thinking about, they, they thought to themselves, we're surely going to heaven. So in the afterlife, if we're not going to run into one another, it's not because we aren't in heaven. It must be because you're going to commit suicide and relegate yourself here to the deepest part of hell. Again, they cannot, they're just so unwilling to put their own life 
against the life of Jesus and be honest in their assessment, honest about themselves first of all, and then their assessment uh, of Him. And there's so many people uh, yet today uh, in that category, and I think that most of us uh, have been in those shoes at one time uh, or another in our lives. And then Jesus answered them and said, you are from beneath, I am from above. No, 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 he says. It's not, it's not you going to heaven and me going to eternal judgment. Uh, that, that's not the conclusion you're supposed to come to here. You are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, and I am not of uh, this world. And therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your uh, sins. And so here he goes into the plural here, talking about the same uh, issue uh, though. And so uh, if you, you will die in your sins, for you do, if you don't believe, in, believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So the only way not to die in my sins is to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. And the reason that that's effectual or effective is because that is God's way, His means, His chosen means of salvation. Jesus does it here, though, doesn't just declare to them that they need to trust in Him for salvation, but He adds the caveat. He says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You notice in that verse that the He is in italics. That means it's not in the original. It is something that's been added by the translators in an attempt to make something uh, clearer for us. And most often when you see a word in italics in the Bible, it's been added there and it's very helpful for us to understand what the passage is saying. Here it's not so helpful. And you take out the He and you have Jesus saying there, uh, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am is out of Exodus. Uh, it is a name for God. When Moses said uh, to God, who should I say is sending me? Speaking of going to the children of Israel, I am that I am has sent you. It's a name, the, uh, the name of God. Jesus is clearly ascribing deity to Himself. Why would I need to believe that Jesus is divine in order to be saved? Why would He make uh, this statement? You have a whole world of people, and, and most Jewish people uh, today, that's their stumbling block. They look at it and they say, we believe that Jesus is a historical figure. We believe that He did the miracles. Uh, we give a nod uh, to His teaching uh, to some degree. Where we stumble is His claim to be the Son of God. His claim to be divine. And so, why is it necessary for us to recognize that He is divine? And the reason is, is if He's not divine, then He's not sinless. And if He's not sinless, then He can't die for sinners. He would need a Savior Himself. It is His deity that qualifies Him to be our Savior. And so He warns them, and He and He. he, he, he recognizes from a long history with them. But again, last six months, he knows time is running out for them. And, and, uh, and they're still playing games with him, and they're in danger of dying in their sins. And so he speaks to them uh, of the necessity of believing uh, in him. And then uh, they said to him, who uh, said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just uh, what I've been saying to you uh, from the beginning. I have many things to say and uh, to judge concerning you, but He who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard uh, from Him. And they did not understand that He spoke to them uh, of the Father. And then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus' crucifixion, and their part in that, then you will know that I am He, 
that I am and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. He said, when you crucify me, then you're going to realize, related to the miracles associated with the day of His crucifixion, but surely speaking of His burial and then His resurrection uh, three days after. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do uh, those things that please uh, Him. And so again, he is emphasizing the one thing they don't want to hear, and that is that Jesus and the Father are one. They are completely one in complete harmony uh, in the message that Jesus is declaring uh, concerning uh, salvation. And so, uh, as He spoke these words, many believed in Him. The religious leaders did not, but many others in the audience uh, did. And they put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, divine, the means of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, based upon the same truths that the religious leaders were rejecting. If there were only one Christian in the entire world, it would be a condemnation to the rest of the world because it would indicate that the, what brought this person to a faith in Jesus Christ uh, ought to have brought the whole world into a faith in Jesus Christ. It made them responsible for their rejection because the honest listeners within that uh, congregation there that morning uh, they did exactly, uh, they saw what Jesus was saying, they saw where He was leading them, and, and they put their faith in Him. And then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, so His focus moves now from the Jewish religious leaders, and He now addresses this group of, of uh, Jews who have now put their faith in Him and become uh, Christians. He said, if you abide in My Word, you are my disciples uh, indeed. And so uh, there are disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And he said, uh, the, the evidence that you have come now to, to be my disciple is that you will abide in my word. You will know my word and you will obey my word. That's the characteristic of, of every Christian through uh, history and the mark of of a disciple indeed. Then he goes further and he says, uh, as a result of knowing uh, his word, abiding in his word as a disciple, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It is interesting here that the word that Jesus uses for know related to the truth, you shall know the truth, it is the Greek word gnosko. I think the other Greek, one of the Greek words for know is oedis. It's a knowing that comes intuitively. Gnosko is a knowledge that comes by experience. And what he's saying here is as you know my word and as you obey my word, you will uh, come to know by experience. You will know that it's the truth and how you'll know that it's the truth is that truth will set you free. It will set you free uh, from sin. Now when he talks about knowing the truth, setting you free, and disciples uh, indeed here, you look at the culture that we live in. And the culture that we live in, uh, its, uh, its highest view of freedom is to have the freedom to choose which sins I'm going to put myself in the bondage to. That's, that's the view of freedom. That's the freedom we want. Don't deny me anything. Don't make anything illegal. Uh, I want to know true freedom, full freedom, the freedom to just do anything, take anything, anything I want, want to do. That's the definition of freedom. Jesus said, no, it's the way uh, of slavery. Because 
Always, when, I'm at, when I have a freedom that is based upon the practice of sin, all sin has a hook. All sin has a hook. It will take us into bondage. And so you look at the different things that people say, well, you know, I'm free. I get to practice this. Yeah, but could you quit it? No, I couldn't. Ah, so it doesn't obey you anymore. You obey it. So who's the master and who's the servant? You're not free in that. Nobody's free in practicing sin. doesn't make any sense, uh, any sense at all. And so freedom, and, and you look at this definition of freedom that goes on, operates all around us, it's, it's just so childish and, and juvenile that that could be, we're a, we're a free people. And, uh, and all, all we're getting to do is to choose the sins that we'll put ourselves into bondage to. Jesus said, no, I, I offer a freedom here that is in my truth. As you obey my word, you will walk into freedom. And that's a beautiful testimony of each of our lives as Christians. Every time we obey His commandments, it leads us into greater freedom. And it leads us away from bondage to sin. Sometimes we can have, let's say, let's say you and I, we come to know the Lord and the Lord looks at our lives and says, okay, there's like um, 40 things I'm going to have to get to before I take this person to heaven, you know, in the course of their three score and ten, whatever it might be. Everybody thinks smoking is number two. Uh, God is very concerned about removing that first thing from a person's life uh, as a Christian. A bad witness. No, smoking may be down to 28 or 65 or whatever. He gets to these things. And, and sometimes the things that, that are harder for us, and we all have, you know, for me, for instance, if somebody came in and piled up every single uh, hallucinogen on my desk and then walked out, it would have no temptation to me. I would put it all into the garbage and go burn it or throw it away or whatever. No hold on me. Other people wouldn't get out of that room alive. So we all have these different kind of areas and we can look at the fact that we're growing, maybe struggling, but it's a struggle forward related to one area in our life and, and, uh, and to realize the point I want to make and, and uh, try to make here is, is just because we, we're, every time we say uh, obey God's commandments even in another area of our life besides that one, it still sets us free. It still does a freedom thing in our lives as we're walking into a greater freedom in those areas that, that we may have to fight against for the, uh, for the rest of our lives. Not in the sense that God hasn't delivered us from those things, but in the sense that they may remain a temptation for the rest of our lives. And so this is a beautiful, beautiful freedom. And what God is, Jesus is saying is what He said uh, uh, earlier about, about uh, in another chapter about His Word, is that His Word works. Again, we talked about philosophy. We talked about all of these ideas that people come up with in terms of what will work for how to live. None of them work. They're just talking and talking and talking and talking and there's no advancement. It's like a living in my head. And God comes, Jesus comes in and says, you obey this and you'll know by experience uh, a freedom that my Word uh, brings. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. I mean, how many of us in the room, you don't have to shout out, but as a Christian, have come to know a freedom in our lives as Christians that we never knew before. And we would have never known it apart from being born again and apart from the, the freeing uh, power and effect of His Word. And so they answered Him and uh, they said, here is the religious leaders now, as they jump back in, and uh, they answered and said, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made uh, free? So they're offended here uh, at Jesus declaring 
that this kind of freedom is only found in Him. And the, and the religious leaders understood what it was that he was, he was saying here. They're angry over it. They declared, we're descendants of Abraham, never been in bondage to anyone. Well, you could, ne- you could almost not find uh, any statement that is more chock-full of self-deception uh, in, in the whole Bible. Uh, it, 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 they'd been in bondage to Assyria. They'd been in bondage to Babylon. They'd been in bondage to Persia, to Greece. They were in bondage to Rome at this time. Jerusalem, the entire land of Israel, was filled with Roman soldiers. They paid taxes to Rome as an evidence of the fact that they were not a free people and yet convinced that they are free. And they're thinking in terms of a political freedom or this kind of thing. Jesus is talking about the bigger picture, the issue of, of, of spiritual freedom, of freedom from the bondage of sin. And so he says, and makes it clear to them, verse 34, he answered them, Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. By virtue of the fact that we commit sin, it tells us who is in the driver's seat, who's the master, and who's the servant. If you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed or of a uh, truth. So he contrasts the servant in a household, a slave, and then a son. So a slave in the household, his position in that household in the Roman Empire was tenuous. He could be cast out uh, at any time and lose all of his privileges. That could not happen to a son. And Jesus is saying to them that they need to become sons of God. They need to trust in Him and, and become a child of God through faith in Jesus in order to gain these privileges that God wants them to have, wants us to have, and then they can never ever uh, be lost. If the sunset uh, makes you free, you shall be free indeed. This is true freedom. I know that you're Abraham's descendants. I know you're Abraham's physical descendants. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Now again, this is a public setting. They already got the idea that the word is out, that they want to kill Jesus. The religious leaders, the Jews there at the Feast of, of Tabernacles, it's, it's a, the worst kept secret uh, in Jerusalem. But here he confronts them, lets them know before this audience that he knows uh, what it is that they have uh, planned. You seek to kill me. The reason that you do is my word has no place in you. It's not because you can find something wrong with me. It's because you don't like what I'm saying. And the problem is, is I'm only saying to you what the Father wants me to say to you. Your problem isn't just with me. Your problem is with God the Father, the one that you claim to be uh, so uh, zealous for. And they, uh, and uh, uh, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and, uh, and do, and you do what you have seen with your father. And they answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. Going back to their claim of a physical lineage with uh, Abraham. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you may, you may be a physical descendant of Abraham, but you are not a spiritual descendant of Abraham at all because Abraham would not even have thought of what it is that you are thinking of doing, uh, let alone one day doing it, or rejecting God, or rejecting me as the Messiah, and, and the Son of God in the way that you are. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. It's kind of like, I remember that, remember that was uh, one of those presidential elections way back when. And who was the, was the fair-haired boy out of Indiana or whatever? 
um, and he was a vice president candidate, I think with Bush won. Quail, yeah, and he, there was that disastrous uh, de debate statement, I knew so-and-so and you're no so-and-so. And so it's like Jesus is saying here, I knew Abraham and you're no Abraham. And, uh, and, and that was a political death sentence for Quail. Uh, and, and, uh, and so it is, it is here in this, in this discussion. Uh, thank you, by the way. You'll, uh, free cup of coffee after the service on that. Uh, and, and he said, uh, but uh, uh, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did this. You do your deeds, uh, uh, the deeds of your father. God is not your father, no matter what you're saying because of your response to his son and to this teaching. And then they pull out the, uh, the uh, terrible thing. They said to him, we were not born of fornication, intimating that he was. Because Joseph and Mary uh, married after his conception. And so this was the stigma that Mary bore. This was the stigma that Jesus uh, bore, that He was born out of fornication, born before or conceived before uh, they, were, they were married. And uh, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Now, when you're losing an argument badly, and you're losing that argument publicly, based upon facts and based upon Scripture, what do you resort to? Slander. You, 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 you kill the messenger in order to kill the message. And this is their attempt uh, to do that. Jesus had a response to them. He said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of Myself, but He sent Me. Why do you not understand my speech? And then he answers his question. Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. Now this is known as clarity. They've just said their, their God is uh, uh, God the Father. And he said, no. Based upon your actions, your plans for me, how you're handling uh, truth, the witness of the Scripture to me as Messiah and the Son of God, uh, this, is, this is no evidence that you are, uh, uh, your Father is God the Father, but it is an evidence of the fact that your Father is the devil. And the desires of your Father you want to do. You're not obeying God the Father here. You're obeying a, a different God and, and the, the, God, the only God that would tell someone to do the kind of things that you're planning, and that is the devil, because he was a murderer from the beginning. You're planning to murder me and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. You reject the truth that I uh, teach you. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a, lie, a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. He says, that's your problem. That's your problem. I'm telling you the truth, and you don't want to hear the truth. You don't want to hear it. That's the issue for you. I mean, now in all of this, this is a back and forth, but... Jesus could have just shut this thing down in two verses and moved on. But He's thrown the net out. He's patient. He's patient. He's patient. He's direct, but He's patient. And He's trying to draw them in to wake up to the danger they're in and the condition that they're in. And so you think you're rejecting Me for all of these other different reasons. I'll tell you why you're rejecting Me. Because I tell the truth. And, uh, and a lot of people have a beef with God and with Jesus uh, over that. And so they reject Him for, well, I reject Him. I don't want anything to do with it. And it's because of this and this and this and this and everything. And you say, okay, what truth 
of his don't you like. And that's really what we're dealing with here somewhere. And which of you then, as he uh, poses the question to them, that's, this is the reason for your unbelief. And then he said, which of you convicts me of sin? And if you've been in this church for any length of time, you know this is a favorite of mine. So here's the discussion. And, and they've rejected him on the basis of all different kinds of things. And so then he poses the question, which of you convicts me of sin? They've watched his life under a microscope for three years to try and find some fault in his teaching, some fault, some sin in his life, which they could then throw in his face and then call, and call on the entire Jewish people in the world to reject him and his claim as Messiah and as the Son of God. So here in this public setting, Jesus gives them the opportunity, which of you can accuse me of sin? Now, this conversation, uh, there, there are no notes here, uh, here that give any indication of pauses. So we don't know how, how long this conversation went on. So when he says, which of you convicts me of sin? And he leaves the question before them. I don't think he would jump right into uh, the next question unless he allowed it to sink in a little bit. Jesus understood how this kind of thing works. And so, which of you convicts me of sin? And he turns the floor over to these religious leaders that are plotting his death and say, accuse me of one sin. And what's the response on their part? Silence. Complete silence. They could not break that silence of that question. And because he is the only one who could break that silence, he then broke it by then asking them about the logical conclusion about him to their silence, and that is, and if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And they had an opportunity to nail him, and they struck out. Now, the thing that's important to understand, I assume most of us are Christians in the room tonight, but if you're not a Christian here tonight, and you reject Jesus Christ as Messiah, as your Savior, uh, as the Son of God, that's the question that you will have to one day answer before Him. You'll have to have a sin from His life as a reason for rejecting Him. And the problem is, is that one day when people stand before Jesus at that white throne judgment, if the question were posed, which of you convicts me of sin, no human being has any more hope of breaking that silence than the Jewish religious leaders did 2,000 years ago. Because it's a silence that can't be broken. There is no good reason for rejecting Jesus. Not His life, not His teaching, not His miracles, not His anything. He who is of God hears God's words, and therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. And then the Jews answered and they said to Him, do we not write, uh, say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? And so now they, they've lost control now. They're really losing the argument here and so they're going to uh, just resort to this, this kind of slander and to put the subject on, on something else. And to call a person a Samaritan, of course, was, as we saw in, uh, earlier in, in John chapter 4, was a very derogatory. And then they, then they accuse him of, of being demon-possessed. And Jesus said, I do not have a demon. One of the most self-evident uh, statements uh, of Jesus. But I honor my Father and you dishonor me. So, if, if I honor my Father, and you ascribe that to a demon, what does that say about you? And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Verily, verily, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And of course, no Christian sees death. 
I mean, in that, in that nanosecond that we leave this body of our physical tent, we are in the glory of, uh, of heaven. And, uh, and so there is, in the way that the world looks at death, that is not what we experience. Jesus offers everlasting uh, life, and it begins the moment we're born uh, again and goes through eternity. And then the Jews said to him, uh, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. So what do you have to say about these people that have uh, died, the, the, the patriarchs? Um, are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead and the prophets uh, are dead? Uh, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, I and mean, they're still trying to they're still trying to humiliate him publicly. Good luck. And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, then I shall be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His Word. Your father Abraham, that you keep bringing up here, your father Abraham rejoiced to see uh, my day and saw it uh, and uh, was glad. And so Jesus speaks of His uh, relationship with, uh, with Abraham and uh, and. Uh, and the, the relationship that he, that he had uh, with the Father and then the relationship that he had with Abraham. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So Abraham saw Jesus. Abraham, in contrast to their treatment of, of Jesus, uh, rejoiced and was glad uh, in seeing and coming into contact uh, with Jesus. So we say, where in the world did Abraham come into contact with Jesus. Well, I'm convinced that that occurred um, in Genesis chapter 18 in what is known as a theophany or Christophany, uh, pre-incarnate, pre-Jesus being born into the world, pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus in human history. When God, uh, Jesus came, came with two angels to meet with Abraham and to talk with Abraham about his coming destruction uh, of the city of Sodom. And Lot, his, uh, Abraham's uh, uh, nephew, is in that city, and Abraham negotiates him down to not destroy the city if he can find even ten righteous within the city. And God couldn't, there weren't ten righteous within the city, and he ended up uh, 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 judging uh, the city. And so Jesus meeting him, meeting uh, with Jesus there, and, uh, uh, and a very, very pleasant, a very, very wonderful experience for Jesus and for Abraham, unlike the reception that Jesus was getting from these religious leaders for all of uh, the, their attempt to um, identify themselves with Abraham. And, and they responded to him and they said, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? How could you see Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years ago? It does tell us a little bit, maybe a little insight into um, the, the hardness or the harshness physically of Jesus' life. He is 33 years old at this time in his life. And they take a, a guess at, at, at his life, looking at him physically, not yet 50 years old. And so there's a, a hint here uh, that he was, uh, he'd, he'd been, through, uh, been through a lot. And so, how in the world can this be? And Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And now you have it as clear as a bell. I am. He ascribes the deity to Himself, uses the name of God the Father to describe uh, him, Himself. Uh, not only did I meet with Abraham and He was blessed to see my day, I pre-existed uh, Abraham. And then they took up stones to throw at Him, 
But Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They understood clearly that He was declaring Himself to be God. They got it. Sometimes you'll hear people, you know, if they're in kind of cults or kind of iffy things that identify themselves with Christianity, and they'll say that Jesus never, de- He declared Himself to be the Messiah, but He never declared Himself to be God. And I wonder what Bible, what in the world Bible are you reading? Uh, here is one uh, of many, many, many where Jesus made it clear that He was divine and their response makes it clear they understood exactly what it was uh, that He was saying. And so we'll stop there tonight and we'll ask the worship team to come forward and, and close us up in a worship song and we'll look to get into chapter 9 um, next week. Let's stand together. If you're here tonight and you aren't a Christian, uh, we'll be up in front immediately after the service and we'd love to pray with you to put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and be born again. Enter into a true life uh, of, of freedom and the freedom that Christ uh, has for you. If you need prayer for anything in your life tonight, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Father, thank You so much for this chapter and we thank You for our Savior. We thank You for uh, even this um, uh, conflict on the part of the religious leaders toward uh, Jesus here. All of the accusations they brought against Him, which are the same accusations being brought against Him today by uh, Jewish people and religious people all around the world and, and the secular world as well. And then to be able to look at the wisdom with which um, He addressed those things and the wisdom that still applies to this day. Thank You so much, Lord, for the life that You've led us into. Thank You for Your Son that has brought us into a freedom that we would have never otherwise known. Thank You for Your truth, the privilege of obeying it, the freedom that ensues. Jesus, we love You tonight. We thank You, not only for what You did for us on the cross in Your burial and Your resurrection, but what You were willing to endure leading up to all of those things in order that we might see You and have recorded for us such beautiful clarity in terms of Your teaching, in terms of Your Spirit, in terms of who and what You are. Thank You for this time of being able to examine and enjoy You this evening. And we thank You tonight in Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen. Trinity, would you close us?
once said. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.